Okay, hello. Welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. Uh, my guest today is Kim Stanley Robinson, and you go by Stan, is that correct? That's right. Yes. All right. So uh, Stan is joining me today to talk about uh, his new book. I'm going to get the name right. Is it High Sierras? Um, the High Sierra, A Love Story. The High Sierra, A Love Story. I thought it can't be High Sierra because that's the Humphrey yeah. Bogart movie. Don't get it wrong, Graham. Don't say the name of the Humphrey Bogart movie, but uh, yeah. It was, well, it was the name of the Humphrey Bogart movie, The High Sierra, A yeah. Love Story. Um, yeah. So let's, I want to start, I'm going to just go ahead and throw you in the deep end, if you don't mind. Is the format of The High Sierra intentionally similar to that of Moby Dick? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> it, It's not intentional, but I know what you're talking about. Um, the novel can include a lot of baggage. It's a capacious form, and nobody showed that more clearly than Melville in Moby Dick. So, and of course, Moby Dick is a monster, uh, which is much beloved and much hated, depending on if you were forced to read it in high school, etc. And the plot of Moby Dick could be written on the back of an envelope, but there's all this stuff, including things that look like essays on how to flens the blubber off a whale and all this kind of stuff. So and, um, and straight discussions of scientific, you know, fact and natural history, all yes. of which is in this book stand. Yeah, that's right. But it's also in my previous novel, The Ministry for the Future. And I used the method there to try to do a novel about how to how we might cope with climate change successfully. And that I really threw in the kitchen sink. And uh, it's an everything novel that uh, it, I was always comforted by the example of Moby Dick. And I wrote that novel thinking also of John Dos Passos's USA trilogy. So there's a certain kind of novel. So then I came to this Sierra material. I've been going up there for 50 years, almost short a year. And uh, a whole lot of topics were in my head and the pandemic hit. It was time to write that book. It all poured out of me in a rush and it was a pretty incoherent rush. Um, my own past, um, historical characters who made a difference to the preservation of the Sierra, um, animals, uh, geology, etc. So how to do it? Well, you know, John McPhee has set a benchmark and a, a, a sort of standard for great nonfiction where he subtly and cleverly flows from topic to topic as he follows his protagonists around and reports on their work. He's a master at it. The people who imitate him who aren't so good, they um, end up uh, mired in the weeds and lost in the swamp and stuck with too much verbiage to try to make it look natural to get to all this various material. But for me, that wasn't going to work. I, I had too many different kinds of things. There was no stream of consciousness that was going to uh, logically get to all the things I wanted to talk about. So I broke it up. And having the example of ministry was a little disturbing because typically I've found as a novelist, if you try to um, import techniques from a previous project into a new project, you um, can actually make mistakes by doing so. But in this case, I think I was right. I've made it a miscellany. I have a whole bunch of strands. I keep returning to the strands, as you see in the table of contents. And it helped me a lot. And I hope for the reader, they can kind of bite a couple chapters off and then go away and come back and read a chapter or two more. And there's, 
I think there's a story arc in there based on my own life experiences, but mostly, you know, it's a kind of a a miscellany. Yeah, well, another way to read it, I suppose, would be in the kind of modular way in which, you know, you've, you've got these categories and they're numbered and i suppose it would be possible to read just all like if there's a if there's a category you find very appealing just read that one through five or one through twelve or or something like that um yeah yeah so what what you run the risk though and it's certainly you're i would say so far you're doing a lot better than uh, herman melville was with moby dick is people not having any idea of what they have got um in their hands and to stretch this melville example farther than i meant to at that you know early in his career melville was a was a known commodity he wrote really exciting interesting factual stories about life you know on the on the open seas and uh i i feel like kim stanley robinson is a is a known commodity um although you've thrown people off of course with things like shaman but when people think of you they probably think of the mars trilogy and now uh Ministry of the Future and are thinking of, you know, near future science fiction with a combination of compelling characters, strong narrative, attention to science, and uh, whatever you want to say, like social commentary. And I actually hmm. can find all of these things in this book, but not in the way that I would think someone would be coming for them if they're planning on reading the next Kim Stanley Robinson book. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. And it's true. Um, and I feel kind of nerve wracked by it. Um, and I can only say this. I, I've written a lot of novels. I like writing novels and I'm uh, proud of almost all the novels I've written as being um, semi successful. And certainly I tried to do things and it's been interesting as hell. Now, this book is a, too personal. It's memoir, and I think memoir is kind of a weak genre. There are some excellent memoirs out there, but uh, to me, it's a, it's not a form that attracts me. And, um, and same with travel literature. You know, I did this, I did that. Well, everybody who travels has an interesting experience. So why, what's the justification for some of these books? Many travel books have no a real uh, heft to them uh, for me as a reader. So I keep reading novels and. And I read a whole lot of memoir in order to write the High Sierra book, in order to get a, a, um, some sense of what other people did when they tried to write their own life story down in sentences. Because it's a very artificial thing. It's another form of fiction. You're making stuff up about your previous self. You're, you're summarizing months or even years in a paragraph. And so you're very much making it up and making your earlier self into a character um, usually kind of an idiot, at least it seems common that you would present your previous self as a a naive person or someone who is learning their way through life, etc. That's the obvious story arc. But to really, um, if you are honest about it, the person that you were at, say, 25 was just as smart and absolutely an adult and might be offended at being condescended to by a 70-year-old who doesn't even remember, you know, how intense it was and how it had to be invented. When you're looking back, you see an arc, but at the time you were inventing it. So I was struggling hard with memoir. And then the other information is, as you pointed out, very similar to in my novels, there will be what 
what people call expository lumps or info dumps. I mean, I'm famous for this stuff and I'm very defensive of that mode of exposition. That, like a, the story of a rock is just as interesting as the cliched story of a, of a person. Uh, and I've lived by that. And I, I have people who like my work for that reason and people who don't like it for that very same reason. So writing the Sierra book was ch challenging. It was new, it felt awkward. Uh, and I'm super uncertain about the results. And all I could do was kind of, uh, let's shape it like a novel. Let's uh, treat each um, uh, page or each chapter like a short story about it and just hope for the best. Well, I suppose at this point I can say I quite I quite enjoyed the book. Um, I mean, it is in some ways uh a, a misshapen and capacious beast but that describes many of my <laughs> many of my favorite works um briefly about the exposition thing i mean this is a uh, a sort of critical um reflex when one encounters that type of exposition one is supposed to say that it is bad writing and make a note of that in the review by the way too much mm. exposition but this yes. position is never defended stan it's just accepted uh accepted in the same way that movies are not supposed to have voiceovers if they are serious movies and there's clumsy movies that have voiceovers that shouldn't have them and many of the greatest films of all time have voiceovers and but it's just accepted that you can complain about that kind of exposition and everyone who's reading the New York Times or the New Yorker will not along. Yes, yes, exposition is bad. I only read Proust, whatever, even though these people obviously don't only read Proust or, or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I did yeah. want to move on talking about the four more than I meant to, because I really want to talk about the High Sierra and some of its history. But it seems to me that the, the novel, the novel, the book itself mm. ends up an essay in a certain way. In, in, in the way, you know, that Montaigne describes the true subject of all of his essays is himself. And it seems to me that that's what this, that that's what this book is. And so it might, the chapter might be on batholiths in the same way that Montaigne might say that his chapter is about riding horses. And, and it is about riding horses, but it's really almost in this like phenomenological or existential way about your experience of these batholiths tied into what you have learned about them in a way that the, the reader gets to follow along with your thought process. And you're absolutely right. It's your thought process when you were writing your book, not your thought process when you were having these experiences, which makes it a, what, a memoir, essay? So that I guess that's my final pronouncement on the category, and you can say whatever you would like to say about that. But I'll 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 stop pursuing this line. I think. Well, it all seems right to me, and I'd like to uh, comment a little bit on both of those aspects of it. That um, exposition is writing about things other than a dramatized scene. So um, uh, it's kind of workshop thinking. It's weak thinking. It's show don't tell. It's um, uh, MFA program thinking. Uh, and it and it radically diminishes the real history and capacity of the novel and of all other writing. If you write at length about a rock, that could be have a plot character and more interest than writing about another car chase. So I've, I've elsewhere I've defended exposition as a form and and critique the the stupidity of the MFA or the diminishments, simplicity, the simple mindedness of the viewpoint that uh, fiction can only be one dramatized scene after the next. And um, Proust manages to layer in a stupendous amount of exposition in the midst of his dramatized scenes. So when he has a garden party that's 250 pages long, 
you're learning an awful lot beyond what happened at that garden party. Uh, so, and then in my book, yes, it is indeed, I make up this term in the book and, and my friend Bill Fox, who studies this stuff, says it, it might be my term, psychogeology. Um, what's the human impact of the geological formations, the, the relationship between the human mind and these rock forms, that's psychogeology. There is a previous term called psychogeography, but that one makes me laugh because geography is already psycho in the sense that it, it, geography is the human use of a landscape. So when you say psychogeography, you're merely being redundant. But when you say psychogeology, you're talking about the relationship between a human experiencing a landscape. And that's what my High Sierra book is very much about. It. And it's true what you say. Every single chapter, including the ones about geology like Bathyllus, is merely my take on it because I'm not a geologist. And it turns out that the subject is enormously complicated so i have to simplify like a like a science journalist to get to my own understanding of what a bathless is and then try to convey it to other people who know even less than i do you know there are such people because i've really tried to understand why the series are there and what they are in physical and and in their own history wonderful so let's let's talk about the history um, but I don't want to go quite far back to the to the formation yeah, no, of the Sierras. Good. Yeah, let's let yes, let, we save that. Readers can find that out as a big surprise. Yes, and I, and I must admit I enjoyed you know learning about granite and bathless in a way that I had not before. But uh, so the, this this podcast is called Everyday Anarchism. I'm sure many people who listen to this podcast know already what attracted me to your work and you to my work. But if you if you don't know uh, the work of Kim Stanley Robinson, he is just a committed crusader for a, a different and better world, very interested in the environment and very interested in the ways that um, humans can make the world better or, or worse. And I, I'm very interested in the idea right now of, of utopia and what I might call like a practical utopia. You know, Oscar Wilde says that every time we make the world a little bit better, we have made it a utopia and then we sail on to the next one. And mm -hmm. the place where utopia, it's obvious to me, Stan, that you found a personal utopia, I assume continue to find a personal utopia in the Sierras. But what fascinated me was the description of, of some of the first Sierra Club expeditions up there and the people finding it to be a, a utopia, a different way of living. And particularly the women found this, I mean, you don't want to say this like natural or older or serene world in this very uh, naive way, but the women found it to be uh, in some ways a purer existence where some of the the trammels of civilization that had restricted them via sexism and patriarchy were gone. So I just wanted to see what you what your thoughts were about that and just share with the listeners the way that this, the, I mean, it, they describe it as socialism, right? I don't think they describe it as anarchism, but I would describe it as, you know, li libertarian socialism. They're all together inhabiting this this space in a beautiful yes. way. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, mutual aid and also making it up um, without a obvious system of laws that were more norms or agreements amongst free individuals that were all equal. Well, now this was simply the month, and they were about a month long, of a Sierra Club uh, high camp trip. And it was middle-class people, and it was um, uh, Edwardian uh, society, uh, and very sexist. Middle-class women were confined to uh, in their lives to home, domesticity, and uh, obedience, and all these things. And but they were educated, well-educated, and they were wealthy enough to spend a month off in the High Sierra 
typically with their husbands, but a crucial thing, William Colby, the first executive director who invented these high camp trips, um, advertised them in the sororities of UC Berkeley and at Stanford and made it clear that wives were welcome, single young women were welcome, single middle-aged women were welcome, all were welcome, but, and everybody enjoyed these trips, but for the women in them, what they found was that at the end of the dinner, everybody would be washing the dishes together, men and women. And, and these women would be standing next to a bank manager, a guy that typically would have his servants do stuff. And he's there scrubbing away at the pots and having a grand time. And they had a euphoria. And they wrote it up. I'm not making this up. I'm reporting what the Sierra Club um, trip reports that were written by women were, they would commonly express this, their amazement, their pleasure. Um, their their month every year up in the High Sierra, the, I mean, the Sierras was part of it, of course, but this little social organization that Colby organized, this mini utopia um, that kept coming back every summer, it was um, the salvation of their lives. It was their favorite part of the year. It was like a breakout. You know, every year you you spend a year in jail and then for a month you're broken out and the Sierras are the context. And of course they love the high Sierra, but for two reasons, it's natural self and being outdoors. And then for its social self, this little club organization. So now people make fun of the Sierra club of the, the high camps were not particularly uh, low impact or ecological or even wildernessy, um, but they had their moment. And in their moment, I think they were doing a great thing for a very small number of people, but it was like a, a pocket utopia that came and went. Yeah, and then I think the next, you know, the, the the skeptics move, as I'm sure you have spoken to plenty of skeptics, as I have, is to say something like, "Oh well, you know, sure they could do that up there in in that mountain, both you know, sort of high on the power of nature and also removed from their life." And then once you go back down into the world, or as it's often called, society, you cannot uh, you cannot escape from all of these things. To which I think perhaps hopelessly optimistically is is wrong if you can create a society of 20 like that in the sierras it seems no reason why you couldn't create a society of 20 like that uh that then connects to other societies down on the earth but it what the sierra club did was was crystallize a moment that could be reproduced but it doesn't seem like it really was reproduced that i'm aware of well that's right. But also, how does progress happen over historical time? Those women would come back down into San Francisco and the rest of California culture, and then California culture becomes something a little different, a little more progressive. We see that even now, uh, politically and socially. Now, this is not to say that California is a utopia because it's inside the global capitalist system and inequality is extreme here. It's such a pleasant place to live that the... Um, the amount of homelessness, the inequality, the fact that you can be homeless here and not be killed by the winters. Um, California has some really severe problems and yet California culture is um, different, progressive. So maybe um, it's what you're saying. You have these little pocket experiences. You go back out into the world, you're thinking, but wait, why couldn't the world run like this? Or at least my town. And then you would join the Library Society, the League of Women Voters, the civil society gets strengthened and hopefully is a force for good. I mean, so if you're, this is always the problem for radicals. And um, if you're doing good liberal progress, does that 
um, actually block the way to more radical and substantive progress. So this uh, strategic and tactical argument goes on always across all fronts. But I, I'm of the mind, especially in the climate emergency, that all good moves are good moves and you can't, um, you can't complain if it doesn't do everything because nothing's going to do everything. So you just uh, inch along as best you can and hope it speeds up. Oh, yeah. I mean, now you're talking, you know, one of my personal obsessions, this, you know, it does seem to me that there are certain good moves that might also foreclose better moves in, in the past. The example, uh, sorry, in the future, the example I always use is, is, is gay marriage, which was definitely a good move, but strengthened, you know, the sort of socioeconomic power of marriage as a uh, as a conservative institution in a way that something like um, getting rid of federal recognition of marriage and replacing it with civil unions for everyone wouldn't have done. Does that make sense? I always worry about the like the good move that also is a dead end. And perhaps if we had not had gay marriage when we did in this country, but we got civil unions around 2022, maybe things would be a lot better in 2028. But that's also a hard case to make to the people, you know, who would benefit from from game. And it was a case that I was unwilling to make, in fact, to those people as I was speaking to them, to my queer friends who were supporting gay marriage. It's always a, a, a difficult question. I certainly don't have an easy answer to these questions ever. No, because there aren't any. Um, and it's true what you say. A, a solution might be provided that uh, sustains the uh, already existing unjust order uh, rather than if that solution wasn't proposed, maybe the thing would crash and a better order be made entire. But often that doesn't happen. Uh, and there's the uh, the other truism is you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uh, and and this is an un, unsolvable problem. Uh, you have to go back and forth. L recently, speaking of anarchism, I've been suggesting to everybody on the left or everyone who's progressive that internal fights on the left are killing us, always have. And um, it, here's a way to think of it. If you put progress, historical progress to leftward towards justice on a timeline and say that the arguments between us happen because some of us are concentrating on the problem of the day, like you need one more Democratic senator in the Senate. Other people are thinking, but that's just the already existing capitalist system that locks in all kinds of inequality. Who cares about that battle? We need um, um, a world in which all wealth and power are horizontally distributed so that every human on the planet has them all equally, which I think would be a definition of anarchism. Not lack of rules, but lack of rulers. Yes, which I is agree. a distinction I like to make. Now, what if you would say, but one person is focused on today or 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 next month uh, or the next election the next person is focused on well in a hundred years we need social democracy or democratic socialism and another person is focused in 500 years out saying at that point we really need pure human justice and equality planet-wide none of them are in disagreement they're focusing on different points on a timeline and it's a science fictional timeline it goes forward uh, into the future, it is speculative, and it also assumes that things will be getting better if we succeed. So in that sense, um, you could maybe reconcile 
the arguments, um, the sort of narcissism of small differences or the knives in the back um, the, of arguing with the people who are willing to argue with you because they're all leftists and then you wreck the leftist cause and the right comes charging in. <laughs> So think, uh, well, I'm a I'm a 100 year in the future person, which actually for me personally, that might define my usual uh, mode of, of uh, political thought. And really, when I say 100 years, it would be best if it was more like 10 years. But um, I'm thinking out of middle distance and thinking, let's shoot for that. And there are other people that I'm talking to or they're really worried about today, today's news, the next election. And then there are other people who are in uh, um looking further out along the timeline saying, well, look, this is where the ultimate goal, a kind of morality, a kind of a um, political economy, uh, that combination. And so, but all these people are on the same team. They just have different temporal focus. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, without a doubt, <laughs> conversations in the left can find real differences between, between two um, ideologically different positions that both consider themselves or are on the left. But I think you're right. I think it is usually that issue, the question of time distance. One of the most cited uh, anarchist thinkers on this show and probably the most cited anarchist thinker ever, Kropotkin, he rails all the time about parliament. And he seems to think that if you have if you have voted in in parliament, you have made a, a huge mistake, voted in a parliamentary election. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't. What, one of the problems with parliamentary elections is it it asks so little of you, which it seems to me, from your perspective, that's great. You can spend all of your time working on ten years out, or a hundred years out, or a thousand years out, and then just you know say to your comrade, "Oh, hey, who's the preferred left wing candidate? I want to take a look at them for an hour, and then I'll go vote for them." And then and then you've spent an hour and ten minutes on voting, and you can devote the other entirety, the 364 days of the year to your time. And I think there's all sorts of ways to do that. And I think you're right, Stan, we don't, we don't do that. And maybe just simply because um, we sort of are who we are because we like ideas and we like arguing and we like talking to interesting people. And it's easier to, uh, it's easier to confront one another in this sort of um, intellectual battle maybe than it is to go out and fight the actual battle of making the world a better place. At least such has been said about, about people like me, about academics for a very, very long time. Well, and I think that it's true that you need to, if you want to have an argument to kind of clarify your own ideas in in a kind of a um, uh, contestatory way or whatever, just to articulate it, you need to be talking to someone who would agree to your terms of subject. Like, um, you can't talk in a coherent way to someone from the far right often because they're talking from a completely different set of axioms. So you end up arguing with the people who share your axioms because then they will understand what you're saying. They will agree but disagree, and you can get into a useful exchange with them. But if you get into a certain kinds of argument, it's pointless. You can see that they're not they won't even be understanding your terminology. They don't hold the same axioms and you just talk past each other and often shout and get angry and all that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. I do wonder, you know, since I've been pursuing anarchism as a mode, I, I do hope you know, there's a there's a like farm and tool supply store around where I live, which is in North Carolina. It's a chain. It's called Tractor Supply or something. And it and it runs these ads, you know, these purportedly right-wing ads that say, for those of you who know that you can only count on you and your family and your community. 
and this is supposed to appeal to you know Trump voters are real Americans, and I think that's actually a pretty. I mean, Emerson or Thoreau could have said that. Like this is uh, like there perhaps there's common ground here. I mean, this is the this is the Bernie Sanders moment, right? You should be against big government and big business together, and then the you know big government can can give you things with as little red tape as possible. And that's that's my dream in terms of talking to people in the right wing. Like you hate the lawyers who are denying your FEMA claims. I do too. Let's let's get rid of the lawyers and just you know. And also get rid of the corporations. That's the that's my dream. I haven't yet spoken to anyone, even a libertarian, who who finds this uh, amenable to them in in any way. Perhaps it's just that uh, political discussions are so difficult right now across any sort of lines or bounds. Well, and it's interesting what you say because, um, in a way, what what you might be trying to find are axioms that everybody would agree to. So you have like Emersonian self-reliance, but also it has to be pointed out that no human is self-reliant and that this is a, a fantasy. That it, say the world went away and you were in North Carolina and you had that tractor, you don't have the fuel for it. Right. Um, it, it probably takes um, a good science fiction writer, Charles Strauss tried to estimate how many people it takes to support your lifestyle, even out on a, a subsistence farm using modern methods and he estimated it's a hundred million people this was a way of saying that starships won't work um, that a hundred million people are taken for the the life you expect to lead with its medical care with its um, you know with its energy systems with its technologies and its education um, we are so inter interdependent and so dependent on people on the other side of the world, as we found out during the pandemic, that you don't want to have too much of a fantasy of you can only depend on, you know, the way that ad should go is you can only depend on yourself and your family and your community and all the workers in China who are making your your crap. Uh, and And when you add that extra sentence, then they kind of blow up. No, I could do it. You know, I would have a hoe. I would have a, a some seeds in a hoe. And that would work. But at a subsistence level, there would be far fewer people and far shorter lifetimes. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, all of these things are gradated and there are no pure truths. There aren't any obvious axioms that everybody will agree to right away. Maybe you have to go right to things like, well, life is precious. Um, mm. You shouldn't hurt other humans. You know, get down to real fundamentals of, of a political economy and, and philosophy of, human, of what human beings really are. Start there and see what kind of um, uh, political structures kind of get built on that. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I also think that's probably not that far away from what Kropotkin is trying to do. You know, what do we need? We need bread. We need, that means we need farms that, you know, and then whatever whatever comes from that is the is is what we need um yeah yeah i want to say you know yeah. kropotkin was good in his time really good mutual aid and um you know thucydides was a tremendous historian um and same with marx but they are not good on the year 2020 you can't use them very much as authorities because they didn't know what was going to happen next and what's yeah. happened since their time has made their points of only analogical value. So these are analogies and analogies are always semi-deceptive because the current situation is new and bizarre and unprecedented. And you have to then 
give up on these truisms from the past. I mean, Adam Smith or Rousseau versus Hobbes. I mean, they're interesting and useful. They were good in their time. But now we have to do all that mental work without just using these people, their ideas as crutches. Yeah, they can get us started, but that's all they can do. For me, you know, not, you know, this is what makes Marx wrong, but I think it's also what makes Kropotkin wrong and, and Dewey and all of these people. All these people are writing in this industrial age and they are all, and a, a lot of people, you'll hear the democratic socialists use this term. They're always talking about workers or the working class or something like that. And those people simply do not exist. If you read like Jane Addams' description of the working class, she says it's an army. It's an army of people who live together and then, you know, go to the factory together, are ordered around by officers of industry, and then go back to their house. And so it's very easy to read Marx or Kropotkin. And they say, you know, if we just get the working class on our side, we will win. In America, that doesn't exist anymore. You could not go to a factory and convince a couple hundred people and then suddenly have this unit behind you. These units uh, are not constructed in the same way. And if they exist right. in China, yeah. Yeah. you know, an American labor organizer cannot get to them in China. So when you read these right. people, Stan, they always say, you know, just, you know, go to the working person and and speak to that person and they will organize behind you. But the what is called the white working class barely works anymore in, in, in the way that these people are describing. Those jobs yeah. are gone. And right. their theory, these revolutionary theories depend on these massive people that are newly urban and alienated. And yes. those people, I... if, if they do exist, they're on the other side of the world. And that's not the kind of organizing that needs to be done, which is why Starbucks is, yeah. is organizing. That's what the working class looks like in America right now is Starbucks. And boy, does that not uh, make any sense. M Marxist and Kropotkin's theories don't make a lot of sense, I feel like, applied to a four-person Starbucks store that's trying to organize. No, but they do give us some, um, and I, I, I probably sound like I'm contradicting us here, myself here. I mean, we have to build on their ideas, but they have given us some um, um, extremely powerful analytical tools to apply to the current situation. And, and one of them is class. And in capitalism, there is still class, um, but you could say the 1% and the uh, precariat. You could say, and because the 1% hires a managerial class, you could say that really the top 10% are doing so well that they wouldn't want any changes to the order like the tax laws. So there's this class and, and wage labor exists. So the precariat, you're selling your life at a, at a price that is forced downward because you're desperate because of wage pressure, which is to say unemployment. And at that point, you take what you can get, but it's not enough to pay your bills or give you what you might call social security. So you're in the precariat, one job lost, one health crisis, and you're screwed. You're in debt and no one can get out of debt. So class exists. And Kropotkin was right on mutual aid and Marx was right on class analysis. And those those truths haven't gone away because we're still in the capitalist system. And I know you must talk about this all the time. <laughs> so then what do you do in this? Well, education, talking like you're talking and then bringing up. And here's where I'm I'm forced as an old hippie leftist to sound way more uh, moderate or li left liberal than I would used to be comfortable with. You need a Keynesian approach to this situation right now, given the way the world is and climate change. 
you need Keynesianism, which is which is really what saved capitalism from a mass workers' revolt in the 30s. Government uh, spending a lot of money to put ordinary people to work, and in this case, it could be climate work, and then that gives them security and takes them out of immiseration. And then let's hope for social democracy, then democratic socialism, then anarchy. I mean, these these are names for uh, good futures that will probably look different than what we expect now. Uh, so, so of course, the past is useful. I, I hope I was not trying to suggest it wasn't. No, I but, don't think you've I don't yeah. think you've contradicted yourself at all, Stan. It yeah. makes perfect sense. Go ahead. Well. Trying to figure out, especially trained by a Marxist and utterly convinced that Marx as a historian was one of the greatest we've ever had, and we use his analysis every day. Um, I would say, um, what would he what would he say? What can we take from his work to become better um, green environmentalist leftists that are helping to um, uh, dodge the mass extinction event that we're dropping into? Um, so, this is such a gnarly beast of a problem that this is why I've been reduced to or um, turned to Keynes as an example mm -hmm. of a capitalist system working in an emergency to try to dodge that emergency and then hopefully afterwards get to something better. Yeah, I mean, I put the title everyday, uh, everyday anarchism in my show. I put the word everyday in there to, to precisely to indicate that I was open to things like Keynesian solutions, as well as the sort of everyday sense of open to things like carpooling, because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I certainly am not have never been and will never be one of the type that would say vote for Trump in the hope that that would tear the whole system down. And then on the ruins, the you know Emperor yeah. Bernie Sanders will rise up or the ghost yeah. of Lenin will show up. I mean, that these people are, these yeah. people are absurd. And I think it seems like you and I are pretty, pretty agreed on that. We've got to do what we can with what we have to move towards as quickly as possible, but that might be very slowly the world we want. And there is new urgency that the world we live in Will I mean I had climate scientists on the show last month, and you know the the world we live in is uh, is going away, and frankly that's that's fine for the biosphere. The biosphere will recover as long as we don't blow up uh, enough nuclear weapons, but humanity will will disappear. And the fact that that <laughs> that has added a new urgency to yeah. uh, to these conversations, I think it sure has. I mean, we're in an unsustainable. Um... A political economy that uh, um, treats the future as uh, unimportant and trashes it. So it's like a gigantic um, um, multi-generational Ponzi scheme. So we rip and then future generations um, pay the piper, but they can't. The, it won't be payable. So their, their, their uh, life world is wrecked before they even come into existence by our present actions. So that has to change. Because it's now now the um, the fires are beginning the 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 process of falling apart has begun and we can see it and the scientists are screaming in dismay um, there's supposedly nine planetary boundaries that we cannot push past without creating hothouse earth which is um, no ice on the planet and complete devastation to humanity and about four of those planetary boundaries we are right on the edge of skirting pushing. And the important thing to point out is that if some of these planetary boundaries, if we shove past them, like, say, releasing the methane in the permafrost, et cetera, et cetera, we can't recover from that. It, it's, we can't claw our way back. Even if at that point civilization said, oops, we, we've torched the planet, let's fix it, 
it will be unfixable. And this is what the scientific community is trying to point out now is that we've got the 2020s to try to um, ratchet it back really fast, decarbonize, um, help with biodiversity. We need to do that instantly as fast as society can move. And then of course, questions of political economy come in. Um, capitalism is saying, well, that's okay, we can do it. We'll just make a profit from doing it. And then people who don't believe that capitalism is, is geared to doing that, that it's always about short-term profit for a few over the many, are saying, well, no, I mean, that's all very well. Please do invest in green projects, but we also need government to take over the project and become a kind, and of course here I'm a, I'm a statist until, until we get past this crisis, this, the nation state system has to take control of the economy of the world and, and tell it what to do as if we were in World War II. So um, th that's the situation as I see it right now. And, and, but it's always worthwhile going back to fundamentals, to the axioms. And this is why everyday anarchism, like in your town today, you can begin to do mutual aid. And that's, uh, that begins, that contributes to the process of the, of the shift away from the extractive, uh, appropriative and unjust model that we're trapped in on the global scale. And if everybody were to push, then our representatives, our political representatives would then legislate to aim that push. So it is an everyday project. Yeah, that is, uh, I'm, I'm completely with you that given the world we live in now, it's going to take state and, and corporate action to fix this problem. But I, the people who think that the way to achieve that state and corporate action is lobbying in Washington. I think they are misguided. The, the it's it's too late for that. The only way this will happen is if something from below happens. If people let their representatives know, their local representatives, as local as they can, that they are sick of this and they are not going to take it anymore. Um, that's the way to change the Senate. Not like make sure you have the right. Um, Democratic candidate who's just purple enough to win a purple state. The way to change the Senate is to have you and your neighbors and friends and family demand something different. That's that's what's called democracy. But we're not interested in practicing democracy that way anymore. Yeah. Not very often. Well, that uh, well, but but um, if you go down and join your incredibly boring town council meetings, which I have done. Um, they're in slow motion. There's a kind of cone of stupidity over them, but they are well-meaning, and that is uh, where the climate change action is happening at yep. the town level, at the state level. But it's also important uh, to go to Washington. I mean, this is an all-hands-on-deck situation, so it's not the actual figureheads running for these offices, especially the senators. It's their staff. Mm -hmm. When their staff goes out to research and find out what their senator ought to be uh, legislating in terms of writing bills and voting for bills, those staffers need to be running in to left lobbyists, to left think tanks. They need to be handed tools, which is to say political tools, to take back to their senators and say, well, we should try this. Because that's what happened in 1980. The counter-revolution of 1980, the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal counter-revolution, things were going in a Keynesian way, but that there was a class, which was really um, very rich uh, people uh, on the right who never liked even Keynesianism because it gave too much power and money to the people. And it was... Um, it looked like rich people were endangered by incredibly high progressive tax rates. I mean, the U.S. tax rate in 1953 under Eisenhower and a Republican Congress 
is a sight to behold because after you've made four hundred thousand dollars, everything above that was taxed at a ninety-three percent level, <laughs> and um, that's a different political economy coming from a different structure of feeling in which rich people were not lionized and turned into culture heroes. They were seen as the people that made money while everybody else died in World War II, so the rich were not popular. Now, in nineteen eighty, that all turned, but the the Congress and the politicians idiots like Reagan, who never had a thought in his head that was original and just uh, parroted what other people told him to his simplistic beliefs, a kind of a, um, a cloth-headed, uh, gentle Trump. Um, they were handed tools by the Mount Pelerin Society, by uh, Milton Friedman and Hayek. Um, uh, d d give everything to the market and uh, everything will be okay. So um, the current crop of political representatives need the right tools mm -hmm. to say to their politicians, we got climate change, we got massive injustice. How do we solve this? And then the individual senators, some of them are smart, generous, uh, sweet people. Some of them are complete cloth heads, whatever. They're not important except that they do have the votes and they have a staff telling them, advising them how to vote. So at every level um, from the town, Council right up to uh, lobbying in Washington. That it all. There are all opportunities. There are all opportunities. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't disagree with that. I just think the if you want opportunities at every level, we've reached a point where we have to start at at the bottom. And I think it's because the left has the left has prioritized the technocratic top for so long that yeah. we have forgotten. We're still doing that pretty well. We still have lots of good think tanks and academic. Like it's not that we're not making these ideas, but there, there, there is a disconnect between this top-down Democratic Party, such as it is, and yeah. the and the reality. And as you say, that's not that's not how the right wing took over the government. Uh, Corey Robbins says it's a you know it's a mass movement um, for for reactionary ends. That's what the right wing. And I think the American, yeah. you know, liberal democratic left is more like a, a a technocratic movement or an elite movement for mass ends. Um, and along the way, that doesn't get translated. It needs to be a mass movement for mass ends. Right. Uh, well, and I, I would agree. I would also say that the Democratic Party in the American system, you got a two party system. If you make a third party, it screws the party closest to you rather than the one furthest away <laughs> by a matter of splitting. So what you really need is precisely what Bernie Sanders was trying to do, which is to drag the Democratic Party itself further to the left mm -hmm. and make it a true people's party rather than a technocratic business people's party with some with some good social you know, uh, uh, good social causes, but in a business sense, they were still going to send your work off to China as fast as the Republicans were. So in a two-party system, we've got a right wing and we've got a center-right party, and then the left has to just um, die on the vine or go into local politics and just say, look, um, uh, in my town, uh, you don't even have a party designation when you're on the council. You just try to do best things for the people that are in your care. Um, that's great. It doesn't solve the global problems it doesn't go far enough but it's necessary work so that's the bottom up part of it where often you can get good things done without having an an ideological side tag to it but when you get to the american democratic party um bernie despite losing the nominations has been a tremendous force for good by teaching the, the democratic party that there's mass support for his point of view for his policies that we want 
a more leftist Democratic Party is something that was lost in the Clinton years, semi-lost in the Obama years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so this is the service that Bernie has done. And um, I quite like him. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. I like any effort that tries to do this work in America without blowing up the left. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. Um, Stan, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like um, I didn't talk enough about uh, the High Sierra. I did, I guess, just before you go, I do want to ask a bit about, about Switzerland. This can be the, the note we end on because it mm. seems to me that one of the things that was very interesting about this book, and I'll, I'll tie this into um, what we were talking about in terms of we, we do have a lot of options available to us. And what you found in Switzerland was a mountain range that was very different and very similar to the Sierras and in which humans had adapted to in a completely different way. And you talk about people from the Sierras thinking that uh, Switzerland has been destroyed by uh, by human civilization. And yet there, there's a way in which both of them have found ways for nature to exist and humans to exist with nature, even though they're completely opposite and that one is more or less pristine, wild, people go into and come out of it. And the other one, people are living in these sort of islands of civilization within it. But you end up with a relatively uh, unspoiled, sorry, not despoiled. You end up with a relatively unspoiled wilderness either way. And I, I thought that was so striking that we don't have to, there's not one way to find this communion with nature there's multiple yeah. ways of doing it and you've shared two of them in this book yeah thank you for that i'm just back from switzerland uh, my wife and i spent 12 days there we took 12 hikes we had uh no rain uh, all 12 days it was a miracle and i was struck like never before by how different the two ranges are uh, physically and socially and 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 it's your point is really a good one that i would love to emphasize there are many ways to coexist with this biosphere, our Earth. And in the mountains, you can say, well, um, the mountains are so tough, rough, and dangerous, and uh, unprofitable in many senses, that um, they create their own conditions of wildness. And the humans that decide to live there, like the Swiss are living there, that's a human landscape. So is the Sierras. And the whole world is a human landscape. Um, the, the land surfaces anyway, uh, and maybe uh, putting aside Antarctica, but the rest of the world is a human landscape with different land use designations. And there's no reason to get hung up on one. And, and there are people who are anti-wilderness because humans are supposedly exiled from it. And, and it's an idealistic and anti-indigenous notion. No, the indigenous people had areas they wouldn't go into either. They wouldn't live in. They were sacred. They were useful. And so land designation, it's all human, it's all park. We choose, and some places we choose to leave to the wild animals. This is a crucial part of surviving this 21st century, uh, these land use decisions. So any kind of knee-jerk purity or condemnation, all of the habits, um, not just on left but on right, the human habit of being a little too pure and a little bit too quick to condemn, we got to give up on that and just say there's a lot of good ways that keep the biosphere and the wild cousins healthy while we also prosper and and we got to invent those space by space and you know town by town in fact before we end i want to know where where in north carolina are you oh i'm in chapel hill 
Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I I asked because I, my my uh, longtime teacher is over there in Durham. Yes. One of yes. My, I am. I am yeah. familiar with the man. Yeah. Jameson's in Durham, and uh, John Kessel, a good buddy of mine, taught his career and is still living in Raleigh with his wife Therese Fowler, and um, so and also my dad's from Asheville, but during the depression, he his dad lost his job in Asheville as a telegraph operator for Western Union, and they moved down to the Tobacco Flats, um, south of of the uh, Research Triangle, mm -hmm. and so I have a North Carolina connections, which is why I'm interested. Um, oh, I didn't realize that. I lived in yeah. Hartsville, South Carolina, for a few years, which is in that that Sand Hills tobacco mm. country as well. So I'm very familiar with that with that uh, yeah. area. Yeah, well, there's Robinsons in the graveyard down there somewhere. <laughs> okay. Um, I've gone to my own ancestors. Uh, uh, my dad took me once to a graveyard that had all of his people in it. Uh, so yeah, the whole country is a is a wilderness that humans are living in. <laughs> And we got to make room for the wild animals, which is easy almost everywhere if you if you don't be stupid about it. And I'm in fact to end with an encouraging note: this 30 by 30 movement that is worldwide. California has a 30 by 30 state office. European Union has a policy. Biden administration put forth a policy: 30 percent of the land given over to wild animals, substantially and mostly by the year 2030. That's not the hardest. Um, um, uh, measurement to hit. Many places are already at like 25%. So getting to 30 means just uh, taking it incrementally. And everybody in the movement is saying, well, 30 by 30 and then 50 by 50, mm -hmm. which would be that half earth goal that E.O. Wilson defined. Well, this is a, a, I'm surprised in a good way by how quickly this is being taken up by um, modern urban society as a worthy goal and humans are, are collapsing into the cities anyway for for fun and pro and 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 work for work and pleasure um and so it isn't like we have to drive people off the land they're leaving the land and the land can be intelligently um farmed by regenerative agriculture and left also over to the wild creatures and we dodge the mass extinction event so this is my current mantra it's sort of post ministry for the future and the high sierra book does talk about this quite a bit because that's a a precursor space the the sierras are all protected land for like 400 miles uh, long and about uh, 50 miles wide um there are very few roads at all and humans are not supposed to live there and the wild creatures are doing great as i point out in my book so my in other words my sierras have gone from being a kind of a hippies recreational space to an important part of survival of humanity so um you know it's a kind of silver lining on the the black cloud that we're in right now stan i can tell you that i have plenty of neighbors who don't mow their lawns um which is a which is a new thing and it's the yeah this idea that like there's certain places that are going to be 100 wild and you know there's look there's trees in manhattan and there's hikers in the sierras there's no zero to 100 but every place that you can mm. bring some life back whether it's you know a farm that is regenerative precisely as you mentioned or just letting some of the grass in your yard grow and planting some native pollinators that is all part of this 30 by 30 or 50 by 50. I mean, we could get up to, we could get up to 99 out of a hundred if we made all the places that we lived 
part and with nature. And no, I'm not saying we need to do tree houses and 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 hunter gatherer, but you know, there's no reason to have all of these yards that do not have any plants in them that bees like. And there's no reason to have thousands of acres of corn that's all the same and is all genetically modified when there could be so many other things. There could be a forest there and there could be a different kind of sustaining agriculture there. Yeah. And I, yeah. I see it happening even in my neighborhood. Yeah, in my neighborhood yeah. and top down globally, like you're talking about, and everywhere in between. That's the mission. Yes, yes, the push is happening. I think we're in a new structure of feeling. the 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 severity of the emergency is impinged on people's thoughts, and their lives are changing in a in a good way. As a result, you see a, a, enough of it to give you hope that it will turn the tide. So, yeah, fingers That's crossed. A great place to end. Thank you, Stan. Yeah. You bet. Thanks, Graham.